Hello, and welcome to another episode of AgTech So What, brought to you by Tenacious Ventures. I'm your host, Sarah Nolette. When we think about all the challenges the ag industry faces today and into the future, I'm not sure how high weeding sits on the average person's ranking. The thing is though, weeds cost the global ag sector billions of dollars in lost productivity every year. You can pull the weeds out in your backyard with your hands pretty easily, but try doing that over 100 hectares in an hour and that's just not going to happen. So the real scale question I think is really less limited these approaches to date. That's Liam Hescock, founder of Azanio, a company that's tackling the weeding question in a new way, namely by looking beyond chemicals entirely. Liam is joined today by Guy Coleman, a PhD student at the University of Sydney. And together with my colleague, Matthew Pryor, they're gonna dig into the challenge of weeding and what new solutions are emerging to tackle it. The intersection of Guy and Liam's work is fascinating. Guy focuses on looking at whether weeds will adapt to avoid detection. Detection by what? Well, by machines specifically. Machines with lasers or other tools that can kill weeds without chemicals, with heat, water, or even lasers and non-chemical weeding is exactly what Liam's company, Azanio, is all about. We start by jumping into how exactly Azanio, which is a Tenacious Ventures portfolio company, is going about that. Here's Liam. We're working on the method of control of weeds, and so we do that through using pulse electric fields. So we're an early stage deep tech company that's really focused on fighting weeds at the method point of contact and so that is really around providing farmers a new approach to how they control weeds so it can be better weather resilient different chemistry resistance as well and so yeah we've just launched kind of one of our first field units out on a farm near, near sydney here so i've been around weeds for a little while now but yeah really excited about the next few months for us in terms of trying to really provide a cost effective approach to weeding for farmers as i was thinking about what i want to ask you about one of the first things i thought about is I don't really know what a weed is. I, I imagine there are times when a plant is a plant and when a plant is a weed and vice versa. So, Guy, what is a weed and why do we have them? That's always a, it's a good question. And sometimes I think there's a lot of debate around it in the academic circles for the very reasons you mentioned. Uh, but I think my simple definition is just a plant in the wrong place. I'm sure so Liam's all over that as well. It's Sometimes, you, of course, if you have volunteer wheat in a canola crop, the wheat's a weed. Whereas, of course, the previous season, it was a, a crop. And often there's some sort of economic or environmental damage associated with it. So that's why we don't want them, is it's causing harm to our current crop or natural environment, if it's a sort of natural environment we. So we must hate them a lot, right? We put all this effort into identifying them and destroying them. So there must be like an economic impact to weeds that people really care about to spend so much time worrying about hunting and destroying them. Yeah, absolutely. I think a key part of a weed is its ability to rapidly set seed and, and produce thousands of offspring in the in subsequent generations. So say if you miss a ryegrass plant in this season, the next season, there might be five or 10,000 seeds that are produced as a result. I think ryegrass seeds that can stay in the soil for up to seven years, at least in that surface layer. And you hear these anecdotes of people that have moldboarded a field maybe 20 or 30 years ago, and they do it again and flip the, the subsurface up to the top. And they get this ryegrass germinating that really probably hasn't seen the light of day for many years. But I think yeah, it's, it's quite incredible how long they can persist. I think that part of it is, is pretty key that if you do miss weeds and they, they can escape and form sort of large um, populations pretty quickly. And so they compete with the crop for resources or your nutrients on the, on, in the soil and, and water and also light um, as they grow. And there's a bit of uh, research at the moment about if they actually compete between the roots and the, in the microbial level before even there's a, a limitation of resources and they're also super adaptable so while wheat in the next season might be considered a, 
a weed that's not really adaptable because it's been uh, developed for a particular sort of set of genes. But a true weed like ryegrass, for example, or wild radish, the, the genetics of them is, is quite incredible. They adapt to all sorts of different things. They're super plastic in that sense. Now, Liam, I remember with the early versions of the product, you've had to test how well it works, but there must be some sensitivity to, to weeds moving around on probably equipment and, and things like that. How, how did you go about sourcing these things that you could put into the lab and test killing? That's an interesting one. There's definitely two sides to that. There's unlimited farmers that will give you weeds and say, come treat my weeds. So we've never had a shortage there. But when we try and bring them back to our lab across borders, that's a no-no. But finding weeds, they're very adaptable and varied species. So I think even when we're trying to target a few key species that farmers really have problem with, we've really struggled to get the exact type from the farm because ryegrass varies from district to district. But I think we've taken the approach of just focusing on the geometry. I guess that's one lucky side of our system. It's the electrical characteristics come out in geometry. So we can get different species locally and then they mimic the target species we're actually looking at out in the field. But yeah, moving across borders with weeds is a no-no from a, if anyone from the regulatory body is listening. Just again, for people who don't spend time doing this, maybe pick a crop or two. What does it look like in terms of at a particular time of the year and a crop, what does managing weeds today look like? Well, certainly no farmer that I grew up in. Dad's got a farm in Esperance down the south coast. So I've got a bit of exposure to it and, of course, I've studied it. And I'm sure the farmers up there can provide a better answer. But I think in terms of, say, a wheat crop in Western Australia, in those sort of large-scale areas, starting from January, so you finished harvest maybe the previous month, so around now in December, and you'll be going over the summer trying to control what any of those fallow weeds so weeds that pop up and might either act as a, a green bridge for diseases and also take potentially more moisture away from the subsequent crops so you'll try and control those often that's with spot spraying or, or blanket spraying so quite low density then you'll get into say the pre-emergent sprays or the double knock i guess is what they call it before you seed so you go over with a blanket spray of say glyphosate and something like paraquat just to control the weeds that are just before you seed then at either immediately post-seeding or as you seed, you put a pre-emergent down, which is maybe solar incorporated. And so that way you can control weeds that might germinate as the crop germinates as well. But that kind of depends on how you farm, which seed you use. And then during the season, then you have your in-crop sprays, wild radish in the wheat, you might apply some sort of broadleaf herbicides. And then you just maintain that as you go through the season. But there are, of course, there's label restrictions on all those when you can and can't use them. And as you get close to harvest, it gets much more difficult and there's more effective times of the year that you will be using herbicides to control them. But herbicides predominantly in Australia, because I should say it's because it's conservation agriculture. So there's not much tillage because the soils are quite fragile. One thing I want to drill down on there, you mentioned like label restrictions. What does that even mean? Like why are they restricted? What is a label restriction? What is it restricting? Australia's got a, a great system and on each chemical that you use, there's very much restrictions on the types of crop that can be used in. So when you buy a product, it has... Uh, label on it and that label is actually a, a legal document that's determined by the Australian Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines, APVMA. And those legal documents, they say when you can use it based on the growth stage of the crop and what you can use and what weeds you can use it on and what rates and how as well. And so farmers have to follow those legally to ensure that if they use a herbicide, it's used safely and that there's not excessive residues or any risk of, say, drift or reducing risk of drift onto other crops mm. or environmental damage as well and a whole list of other things. But uh, they're pretty key. They're <laughs> very key. 
Yeah, Liam, I, I remember as you were going through customer discovery phase, that issue of spray drift was a pretty big problem that a lot of farmers and, and growers have to deal with. Do you want to talk about what does that mean in practice to a, a farmer who's got people out there and growing crops and thinking about what their day looks like and ha- how weed management is going to fit in with their day? This is a really interesting one, I think, just for communities in general in agriculture, because this is one part of farming that what you do on your farm can really affect your neighbour. And so when we're out discussing with a lot of farmers in the last few years, I was blown away by how much of an issue this was. And I guess the lack of transparency and data around this. So contractors and sprayers have to record their log sheets around what they're spraying and why, like Guy said, make sure you're within label and within the right time of the crop. But I really didn't understand how far some of these this chemistry can travel. And so I think especially in some valleys in Australia, inversion layers and wind can really take the the particulates back off the crop up into the air and they can stay up there for a while and then drift 10, 20, 30 kilometres, which anyone in farming knows that's a long way. That's a lot of farms that it could drop on. And I think now that we have these crops that are more susceptible to some of these chemistries, we're really starting to see some decimation. Uh, and it's a real political issue around local communities, around what herbicides using and why and really tracking that. I think in the, in the next few years, we may see some real improvement in actually monitoring this. So we're now you know, starting to have some sensors out there that actually are looking at chemistry as it's drifting around. And I think that's going to illuminate a lot about this industry and you know, good spray practices are really important in terms of when and how you spray to prevent that. So I guess we're teasing apart a couple of challenges here in terms of the current arsenal of chemistry has some restrictions to it, certainly not just what you can use or maybe what the ecological environmental impacts of those and and therefore the restrictions, but literally the sort of physics of using the product um, has to be managed too because it's a complex outdoor environment. And even if you wanted to use it, you might not be able to use it simply because of the environmental conditions or the weather conditions that are prevailing right now. Is that, If I roughly got that right? Yeah, I'd, I'd yeah. say interestingly, when, when speaking to farmers, the weather was a, a huge part. Like it actually dictated that you can have a great spray program. These farmers would show their big whiteboard of this week, that week, they're going to spray this and that. And then weather would come in and Got it. completely change everything. So I, I think also it seems like there's another challenge in resistance and that even if you could and even if the timing was right, it's less certain that the application of the chemistry or whatever the action that you want to take necessarily will have the desired effect. Can you maybe jump in there, Guy, and talk about that challenge a bit more? Super fascinating resistance and also massive problem because weeds, like going back to that plasticity point, when you spray a herbicide over a large area, you're applying this huge selection pressure. And that means that you might have a population of millions of weeds. And even if just a very small fraction of those can tolerate the herbicide you've applied, then they'll survive and pass on the seed to the next generation. And even I think there was research back in the early 2000s showed that after only two or three generations you can get populations to go from like pretty much susceptible to herbicides to 50% or more resistant and so it means they can survive and yet you just can't use the same herbicides you've used before and that takes the options away from the farmer it means there's opportunity costs in what crops you can or can't grow because often herbicides are associated with the crop and it just makes life a lot tougher ryegrass and australia is a world-leading country for herbicide resistance And so I could see there'd be two problems there. The first is it ends up being an arms race. You need different chemistry or tougher chemistry in a stair step just because I guess a basic level of resistance. But then the second potentially you get to the point where 
the tool chest is empty and the kind of economic impact of that resistance means really yield impact sort of outcompeted crops from whatever it is, moisture or whatever the, whatever the weeds are taking away. Yeah, I know that they're coming up against that in the US where they have these glyphosate tolerant crops and yeah. they really just rely on glyphosate as the sort of one of the few tools in the toolbox and then palm amaranth and some of the super plastic weeds over there really develop resistance pretty quick and now they don't really have any other options. I feel like this is the point at which we're trying to change up the tool set. We're, we're moving maybe to what we might call sea and spray approaches, so at least using less chemistry and potentially even thinking about different ways of actually killing weeds. So in terms of new solutions, there's a kind of detection challenge, knowing what is a weed and a backbone issue with detection is green on green and green on brown. Can you step into that a little and, and let us know what does that mean? What is it in the context of? Yeah, so uh, green or brown is, the use of those colours is green being the weed and brown being either a fallow or green being the uh, crop. So a green on green scenario is a green weed inside a green crop and green on brown is a green weed in a fallow scenario. And uh, it just refers to almost the complexity of the challenge. So if it's a green weed on a brown fallow scenario, it's quite straightforward. You can use pretty uh, simple colour-based algorithms. But these days what we're seeing is that revolution really green on green detection. So now you can do spot spraying in crop and, and also not just spot spraying now, but uh, potentially like electrical weeding, like what Liam's working on or lasers or even things like targeted tillage, because that gives you this whole new opportunity to control weeds uh, on a sort of plant-wise basis. So that, that maybe first wave of, let's say, selective spraying was a pretty unsophisticated binary. And then increasingly, I think this in this detection field, we're moving into the world where we're, we're trying to leverage the broader development in, in kind of statistical modeling and machine learning and large models of, of various kinds. And so I'm guessing that then we start to push into models and data and training and, and all these sorts of things before the tools can become good or specific or crop specific or weed specific. Is that kind of the work that you're into now? Yeah, precisely. So it kicked off in 2012, I think, with some of those first big, what they call like deep learning models that they could start training on thousands of images and, and therefore start detecting precisely what is what, as opposed to just saying if it's a weed or just a plant that's there or not. And so then we've seen that kind of just grow and evolve over the last probably 10, 11 years. It's just now we can do like species detection on the fly. And but unfortunately, it all does come down to data, as you say. So you need to train these models rather than just rely on some sort of threshold or determined variable or something you want to look at. So when you say need to train these models, what does that literally mean? In, is that just acquiring lots of imagery or is it is it actual research where people have to gather data manually alongside what is training a model look like i often say that artificial intelligence is a bit of a it's like a euphemism almost because they're not that intelligent because you have to give the algorithm so much uh data when i say data that's like images of let's use wild radish in wheat uh, and you have to tell it what the wild radish where it is and if you give it enough examples of the wild radish in wheat crops and enough is in the order of say i think thirty thousand images for a probably a prototype and then for production level, many hundreds of thousands, the, the more the better. And that's also one of the benefits of deep learning algorithms that we're talking about is that the more data you give them, generally the better they get. And so that's what that training is. You just give a lots of examples of, of the same thing over and over in different environments and they end up just recognizing the patterns. And so when yeah. you take it to the field, where, which it 
probably hasn't seen yet, then it can recognize those patterns in the image and then determine if there's a weed in that image that's receding from a camera mounted on the spray boom and then activate uh, the nozzle. Um, and and uh, to ask a kind of perennial ag tech question, like who owns that data as a rule? Like where does that data come from and who would end up owning it and how proprietary should it be? Would it be? Could it be? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. It's all these algorithms were built on open source data sets. The data sets that were available publicly to train these. That's how it all started. But then once you start using companies to do your spot spraying, you'd have to go and check all their terms and conditions. But I'm fairly sure that most of the data that they collect using their cameras on your uh, spray boom is probably owned by them. And they use it to refine and train their models further. And so it's not released as an open source uh, resource. Mm. But of course, if you collect your own data on your phone and go and train these models yourself and that data is yours and those models which are open source that are trained are of course yours as well is there any reason why people would care about that where do you see that line falling in terms of training a model say specifically for weeds that an industry or commodity level thing necessarily rather than a farm level thing yeah i guess for those specific companies that what you've mentioned holds true if you had wild radish and you've got Company like John Deere or Bilberry or Green Eye or one of one of those spot spraying companies that are, that are offering that at the moment, you'll of course improve that product by using it over your farm. And that kind of seems to be the, the trend at the moment is to develop yeah. farm or field specific algorithms because of that variability in agriculture. I guess what's more impactful across the whole commodity is putting these data sets out to everyone. So say all the data from each of those companies was shared to everyone, then they would produce the requirement for someone looking to start a spot spraying company to actually go and have a robust model or just people do research developing algorithms that are specific for agriculture. And there's a whole set of research about if you just give a model an absolute ton of data and just tell it to go deal with it, it can start to learn how the structures they, that image perform or how there are plants. And I guess there's a whole field of untapped research that isn't really possible in agriculture because people are keeping their data sets. So Guy, in this, when you were discussing weeds on the farm, and I'm pretty sure a logic test would say farmers don't mind if you've got a photo of their weed in your database. But where do you see farmers actually in this? Are they helping take the, the images or labeling or anything, or are they just getting the product? Do they have any input throughout that training process? Uh, I think it depends on the interest of the farmer. I think involving farmers in collecting data, I think is a key uh, opportunity because they're the ones with the access to the fields and the, the scale and all that. But in terms of annotating, I think there's opportunities to like correctively annotate. So maybe as they're driving along, they're the ones that know their fields and they're the weeds the best. So if you could annotate half of them and just give the ones the algorithm's not so sure on, I think there's ways of potentially involving farmers that way. But yeah, often I think it, annotation is quite like arduous kind of time consuming and there are services I think you can pay uh, to, to have that done. Just to make sure I'm understanding correctly here, when we're talking about training and we're using phrases like labeling, I'm thinking it's similar. I, I use Apple and I, the Photos app is able to tell people and it says, here's photos of Matthew. Not super surprisingly, some of my kids look a little bit like me. And so every now and again, the photos app will say, here's a photo of Matthew and it's actually my son, Joshua. And so I can correct it and basically say, nah, that's actually my son. Is, is that roughly what we're talking about here? Yeah, that's a great a great analogy for it. If you're going along and it says, oh, here's a wild radish, but it's a south thistle or something. Or like, here's a wild oats and it's a, a ryegrass. That's, yeah. And Liam, I imagine you had to think about that a bit in terms of with Zanio just choosing to focus 
on destruction. And in a way, you have to assume that there's going to be a market of multiple sort of detection systems that you can plug into. Is, is, is that the way you've thought about it? That's pretty much exactly it. So we've seen, like you described, like the green on brown and the green on green growing. And we saw there was a number of players, big players and small players, really active in that space. They're getting great traction. They're getting units production out on farm and working. And so we thought, what is this technology going to unlock? This is the picks and shovel of enabling you to find the weed. And then what can you do once you've found the weed? And so I think that's where we really focused on. We didn't think there were enough people really looking to how you actually control the weed once you've found it in this really precise way, apart from using the same chemistry that we have for the last 40 years plus. So that's where we looked at it and we thought, all right, let's play that next stage in actually destroying the weed once once you've found it. And I guess in a way, it, it reminds me a little bit, Guy, of I read your tweet breaking down the Agritechnica show and, and just that there had been a pretty material advancement in the market from the two times you went. And I think you also noted that to the point where some of the larger equipment companies now are just using third-party kind of detection systems rather than trying to build and develop their own. That definitely seems to be the trend. It's lots of weed detection companies uh, and I guess other manufacturers and sprayers are just adopting that tech, their platforms. But yes, yeah, leaves identified there was a pretty substantial almost lack of weed control companies there so one's doing like lasers or electrical weeding or like there's just a couple or, or a few lasers there whereas there were like probably 15 people doing weed detection for spot spraying that's a probably a good jumping off point to talk a bit more about the destruction side we've used a couple of phrases already obviously who doesn't love a laser so we've talked about lasers but it seems there's obviously the chemical pathways which we've covered I presume, like mechanical, probably you talked about tilling. It was in Australia, there's probably more conservation, as you said, and retain stubble and stuff, but there's still the mechanical pathways, roughly speaking. Thermal, is that the right way to broadly categorize? And then laser and then electrical, maybe as a broader category. Help me out there. Definitely. Yeah. If you ask farmers, they've tried a lot of different ways to kill weeds over the years. So I think anything under the sun literally has been tried to kill a weed at some point on some farm somewhere. But yes, when we look at controlling a weed, yeah, we, we looked at a lot of these different technologies. Herbicide, of course, is a gold standard at the moment. It's cost effective and it's easy to apply. Uh, yeah, Like you mentioned, it has some other downsides in terms of application and risks. But then, yeah, really in terms of galed weed control methods there really hasn't been anything that's come online apart from mechanical really that's almost going downhill there really hasn't been anything that's come out that's taken that scale question on and that is really the real challenge i think we've got where there's a lot of great ways to kill a weed you can pull the weeds out in your backyard with your hands pretty easily but try doing that over 100 hectares in an hour and that's just not going to happen so the real scale question i think is really what's limited these approaches today and so i think that's where we really looked at it first principles what can scale and for us Gale means energy or speed. Both mm. of those are critical. And so when we looked at all these technologies, thermal, mechanical, anything like that, we even looked at water jets firing high-pressure water to cut weeds and things like that. It all comes down to energy for us really to get that speed question. And that's the benchmark we, we base our technology on. Again, dropping back to basics here, Guy, like lasers, really? What was actually happening there? How do you kill a weed with a laser? I think it's most basic is the thermal energy. So obviously when you heat up a light and you, know, you hold it close to something, it can burn it. Or like uh, maybe you have a magnifying glass uh, with a uh, sunlight, you focus it into a point, you can burn like a leaf or something underneath. So it's, the, it's that kind of uh, control. Uh, there's also something else there as well with uh, if you get the right wavelength of light, 
you can probably start to disrupt the cellular mechanisms. Um, so you're not necessarily just thermal, you can be much more efficient than actually like heating up a cell because that requires a fair bit of energy. So when it's lasers, it's all about trying to just get focused light on a particular part of the plant to, to sort of disrupt the, the growth of that plant. And that they make the best videos, right? You, you see them at nighttime with the with the lasers flashing everywhere. I, I read something in your tweets there that talked about laser mapping the whole surface area of the plant or something I didn't really understand. What, what was that talking about? Yeah, it's not the most efficient way. It's where the company was basically getting a whole cut out of the plant. And then rather than just focusing on the growing point, they decided to zap every little bit of the plant yeah, to right. try and kill it all. But a more efficient way would just be to detect the stems or the growing point and just zap that. But that gets back to the, what you can do with detection to detect a growing point or detect stems. And then also the actuation part to actually target the laser onto those particular points Got on the moving platform. Incredibly challenging. <laughs> so like have a, a lot of difficulties on robotics and detection sides. So probably that's a point at which the bifurcation of detection and destruction breaks down a bit because there are some forms of destruction that somehow will be limited by how fast you're moving or whether it's autonomous or on a tractor or something just like literally the speed it can go at or the stability that's needed for it to be able to aim correctly. Are there constraints like that? Yeah, I think some of the American companies like Carbon Robotics are doing laser weeding. They operate about a couple kilometers an hour just because not necessarily the detection. I think image processing can go much faster. But I think it's more of the time you need to spend on the weed with the laser to okay. transfer that energy to, to control it and also to actuate and move it around. And obviously high weed density has been more time spent over any given area. Which is probably a good segue into when many people look at these more advanced weed destruction things, they probably see things that feel still pretty early. But it seems like if we called them adoption factors or adoption inhibitors, there, there is a couple of ways to think about that. We talked about speed a bit we talked about obviously that the actual energy cost if you're not spraying herbicide but you're using heaps of energy that's got to come from somewhere a diesel engine most likely at the moment that costs something you actually also talked about like safety clearly if you're shooting lasers about the place there's that and then i'm assuming eventually cost and then just practice change is does that sound like a decent kind of enumeration of the things that we need to think about as we consider this coming to market guy? Yeah, I think that's pretty spot on. And I'd say at the moment, the technology is probably about there. I think in terms of being able to do this, it's yes, we can, but it, it's getting it to fit in, I think, certain farming systems. And I think it works in small scale systems like intensive horticultural production in, in the US or yeah. even in Australia, but to get to large scale systems like where Liam and Zania is working, that is potentially more challenging. I don't think we've seen that. Uh, that part of it, that adoption I had solved uh, just yet. So tell us a bit about that, Liam, how you're thinking about those things. You, you touched a little there on the kind of energy side, but here, if we want to do something about this problem, it's got to happen at scale, right? We've got to be able to cover the big commodity crops and that sort of thing. How, how have you thought about what, what scaling up looks like? We've thought a lot about it and it really comes down to physics. If you're going down the thermal path, that's a, a time question. Like I said, you can find the weed, but then you've got to sit above it and put the laser on it for a certain amount of time just to heat up those certain molecules. And so that time piece is so critical to us. So in our, in our testing today, we're really focused on that as, as a metric. And so our technology doesn't require any thermal transfer of heat and it's just a field. And so 
the systems we're operating on and, and testing at the moment, we're creating a plan in the, in the microsecond range. And that, when you think about it, you think that sounds crazy fast or even nanoseconds, but when you're moving along at 20 kilometers an hour, you're only above a weed on a broad acre setting. I think it's less than you know, zero point, you know, 0.05 of a second. You're actually above a weed at, at medium speed. So these technologies, if they're going to take off, really have to act really fast. And the detection's there to enable us to focus it on this little area, but then it's got to still act really fast. And I think that's been a key part of our technology is that speed, but then also the efficacy. And I think that's one other area that is probably limited alternative, if we call it that, weed control is the efficacy. So farmers are used to 95, 95% plus with, with Roundup and it's been effective for so long. And that's mm -hmm. why it is you know, still used today. But that efficacy piece, you can speed up as fast as you want, but you've still got to get those weeds. And I think that's even that's probably limited weed seeker and things to date. I've spoken with a few farmers around that. And it's if it's not getting all the little weeds or it's missing some of the older ones or weeds underneath. No farmer wants to have to drive back over their farm again just to get a few more weeds. Their time is so valuable. That's something I want to drill down a little bit on, which is business models. As we're thinking out a little further, do I just buy equipment or can I pay for weeding as a service? You just came back from that leading edge show, Agritechnica Guide. What did you see on the kind of business model front? Most were probably subscription model mm. per acre or, or per hectare and, and that kind of time basis or, or just buying it out. I think most weed detection companies or spot spraying have been on a subscription basis and most of them are using a, a per acre model. So basically however many acres you, you pay an upfront fee and then however many acres you use. So I keep using acres as I speak a lot of Americans, but however many acres you over the season, that's what you pay for too. And I think it does feel a little bit like companies are double dipping there a little bit because they see the savings the farmers have and they want a piece of those savings. There is, a, I think, a good argument for so time-based subscriptions, where, of course, if you're doing model development continually, you're taking those images from the, the, the farmer system and, and training better models, the new crops to improve performance, uh, then I can see a good argument for that ongoing development costs that are being incurred on the company. Hmm. I guess going back to the question, mostly subscription-based there were a couple of standouts that weren't doing not just single sort of once-off purchases. Anyone going to be charging on a per weed basis? Probably not. That's a good point, but not yet. It does bring up the question because these systems often operate on like maybe a 90 or 95% performance level, which sort of mm. being talked about. Then often farmers do have to go over them twice with these spot sprayers. And I think then that raises questions about, yeah, like a per acre model too. That's a perverse incentive. <laughs> yeah, make it less accurate so make... you've got to cover more hectares and actually you're pushing into that trend in terms of forward looking guy what are the things that are going to propel there you touched a little bit on like the cost of things dropping down and what are you seeing over the next couple of years that are really going to drive development here i think we'll over the next sort of few years i think we'll start to see much better species uh, recognition and therefore really targeted treatments to what's in your crop and so really more, I think more tailor-made control. So rather than just control everything or just apply the same thing to every plant, we'll hopefully start to see more careful consideration of what's actually there. And I think part of that then goes into the next step, which is more predictive control as well. So if we start incorporating these layers of maps of weed location maps that are being developed now, you can start doing spot spraying with pre-emergent herbicides before you've even found a weed. So I think that's probably where we'll start going. I hope that the drivers for that will be more open data sets and more open hardware and resources and all that to drive some of this research. But I think probably we'll be kept proprietary and we'll just see more of those closed developments. You used the phrase, I, I love and may well steal. You talked about the three-point linkage of model development. Do you want to break that down for me? 
Uh, I'd love to see that. Yes, I think three-point linkages, of course, have been such a like a standardized way of mounting tools to trackers. Uh, and at the moment, uh, we're seeing all these closed development of models for weed detection. And so what I think would be great is if farmers could take their own images and then train their own algorithms and mount them to these spot spraying systems with a sort of three-point linkage of code. At the moment, I don't think that's really clear about how that might happen, but it would be nice, I think, to give farmers opportunities, particularly in agriculture, where there's so many niche use cases, I think, give them opportunities to train their own algorithms for their own particular purposes and just make it more standardized so people can if they want to. One of our kind of thoughts about what happens in this area of models and model ownership and data ownership is maybe it creates a new business model for advisors and agronomists and maybe it isn't the farmer directly owning and curating and managing and specializing but maybe that's the evolution of the kind of ag retail role which is more around helping them manage and interface with whether it's proprietary or open source or some combination of but effectively being their liaison to the kind of tech stack of models that seem inevitably going to be part of agriculture within a decade yeah that's a really cool point that could be a yeah, really cool opportunity hey liam one thing we haven't really touched on much is robotics like how are you thinking about automation here obviously there's big equipment and big sort of self-propelled spray rigs and all this kind of stuff. But there's also lots of little robots. How are you breaking that down? And from the Azania point of, point of view, like where do you slot robotics into the picture? I think it's a really interesting one for a company that's working on a technology or a new product for ag that isn't necessarily robotics or a tractor. And I think we, our, our thought process to date has been stay agnostic. There's a lot of tractors out there. Every farmer has one to 10 tractors focused on being behind a tractor. But if there's an autonomous system that comes along, then make our system small, packageable and versatile so we can go behind that. We don't want to bank on autonomy just because it's not out there at scale yet. But if we stay agnostic and just focus on the technology, keep it small, keep it lightweight, then that should open up many doors in terms of how they will be applied. And I think that'll be a real benefit to us having a technology like ours you don't need to fill up chemistry. You don't really have nozzles that are blocking, etc. An autonomous system is great for this. And because our only input is electricity or energy, one day this could be renewably powered or somehow on a farm like that where you don't need to fill up the diesel tank every day. So that's like the longer term vision. But for now, it's towed behind a tractor like pretty much every other piece of equipment out there. Matthew, Guy and Liam covered a ton. And yet there's still so much to talk about when it comes to non-chemical weeding. But I landed on a few takeaways. First, the weed challenge is super complex. The guys talk today about weeds' ability to develop resistance to herbicides, even in just a few years. This is a huge motivator of finding non-chemical solutions, but I think it's also worth keeping in mind that weeds can adapt to more than just chemistry. Guy is currently doing research on whether weeds might be able to adapt in ways that help them avoid computer vision systems, which sounds wild, but in reality might not be that much of a stretch. If a computer vision system relies on color detection, the green on brown that was discussed, then individual weeds that are not so green and better able to blend into the background will likely triumph and proliferate. To me, this means that a toolbox of solutions rather than a single new solution will probably always be required. I've also continued to think about the farmer's role in the artificial intelligence systems that are the backbone of weed detection. Our guest today talked through outstanding questions of data ownership and whether there's a particular role for growers in the training of the system, with a focus on open source. I wonder whether operators might find value in refining their own proprietary systems, not only because weed varieties can be unique to individual geographies, 
but also because there might be a strategic advantage to spending time building an advanced system for one operation that doesn't equally benefit a neighbor or competitor. I'm excited to see how data infrastructure and business models manage these trade-offs. My final takeaway is around the trade-offs on how weed management technology has to work. The conversation today highlighted speed, efficacy, energy costs, safety, and the limitations of practice change as primary concerns for growers. But of course, there are two sides to these equations. Take energy cost, for example. The cost of applying herbicide might compare unfavorably to the cost of using a laser to kill weeds. But how might that cost equation change if the energy is cheaper and greener? How does it change when the cost of the herbicide skyrockets due to a conflict that affects chemical supply chains on the other side of the world? Even the equation around speed, which feels like the most rigid concern, could be altered fundamentally by autonomous equipment. If an electric weeder can run all night without a human, does it matter as much? All to say, we'll be watching closely to see how these feedback loops play out. So that's it for another episode of AgTech So What? Thanks again to Liam Hescock, Guy Coleman for joining us, and thanks to Matthew for hosting the conversation. And of course, thank you for listening. For more information on any of the resources mentioned in this podcast, visit our website, tenacious.ventures. I'm Sarah Nolette. Catch you next time.